read the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament are critical to the support of what Jesus said, claiming to be the Messiah. 500 years before the birth of Christ, a man by the name of Siddhartha Gautama, who's better known as Buddha, was born. He came up with a good idea and he convinced other people to follow his good idea. And when he died, those followers created a religion around that good idea. But there's not one prophecy predicting the birth of Buddha. No one ever predicted that. No one ever wrote about that. 500 years after the birth of Christ, a guy by the name of Muhammad was born. And he came up with a good idea. And he convinced a few people to follow his good idea. And when he died, they created a religion. His followers created a religion around that good idea. But no one predicted the coming of Buddha or Muhammad. No one wrote about that. No one said anything about that. But when we read the Old Testament, we have over 300 prophecies over several thousand years that predicted the coming of the Messiah. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that the heart of Christmas is based upon the heart of Scripture. That everything that we believe about the Christian faith is based upon what the Bible says. And so today I want us to understand why the heart of the scriptures are so important in our understanding the heart of Christmas. Jesus said this in Luke 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now when we read the Old Testament, the Old Testament as a whole is really the story of the history of Israel, but, but the primary focus of that history is the coming of the Messiah, who we know as Jesus Christ. After his resurrection and before he ascended, Jesus said this, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. George Heron a French mathematician calculated that the odds of one man fulfilling only 40 of those prophecies are 1 in 10 with 157 zeros behind it. Your odds of winning the state lottery are 1 in 14 with 6 zeros behind it. Much better odds. Dr. Peter Ruckman, another mathematician, said the odds of only 60 of them being fulfilled by one person who claimed to be the Son of God who died on a tree, who rose on the third day, is not just one in one trillion, but one in ten to the 895th power. One person. The Messianic prophecies were written over a span of a thousand years. They were completed about 430 B.C. So for 430 years, the Jews knew that the Messiah would come. They knew the prophecies. They knew every single one of the prophecies that are in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. Some of them may say, well, is it possible for uh, Christians to interpolate the Messianic prophecies into the, the Bible, into the Old and New Testament? 
Well, it's practically impossible to do that. It'd be like somebody today trying to add words to the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States. We know very clearly what those documents say, and it'd be easy to see somebody has added something to that. So it's practically impossible for writers to add something into the Scripture as it relates to the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Now what I want to do today is talk about these prophecies, but not all 300. I want to speak specifically to the birth of Christ, and I'm going to start in a general way, and we're going to narrow our focus. Because again, it's important that as others doubt the reality of Christ, they, they doubt the understanding, they believe with their lives other people who, who lived and died, and nothing was said about them. There's no evidence of that, but they bank their life on that. Millions upon millions and millions around the world are lost in darkness based on their faith in Buddha and Muhammad. And that's why what I'm talking about today is so critical so that we can get the message of Christ to them. Now, what does the Bible say? Well, first of all, it says that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. We go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And there, remember, Deuteronomy is the speech that Moses gave to the children of Israel just before they crossed the Jordan River, uh, I mean, yeah, the Jordan River over into the Promised Land. It's about a two-hour speech. And this is what he says, For the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of, our, of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Both Moses and Jesus performed many miracles, validating their message. As infants, both of them were threatened by evil kings, and God supernaturally protected them. Both spent their early years in Egypt. Both taught new truths from God. Both cured lepers and confronted demonic powers. Both were initially doubted in their roles by their siblings. Moses lifted up the bronze serpent to heal the people of Israel who looked upon that bronze serpent in faith. And Jesus Christ was lifted up in the same way on a cross to heal all who would have faith in him. Moses appointed 70 elders to rule Israel. Jesus appointed 70 disciples to go to the nations. Jesus was indeed a prophet like Moses. The snare of the focus. Then we find the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. Genesis 12, all the people on the, earth, on the earth, God says, will be blessed through you, speaking to Abraham. Genesis 18, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, says this. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your forefathers, saying to Abraham... And in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Raising up Jesus to come to the children of Israel, but who rejected him. What does Matthew say? 
the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Bible says that Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac. Genesis 21, but God said to Abraham, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Luke writes, Jesus, son of Isaac. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. By stating that the Messiah would come from the line of Isaac, God eliminates half of Abraham's descendants. Now we continue to narrow. He's to be a descendant of Jacob. Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. Luke writes, Jesus, son of Jacob. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. God is again eliminating half of the descendants. This verse in Numbers tells us a great descendant will come from Jacob, but it will be in a distant future. We know from history Jesus was born 1,400 years after this prophecy was given. It's a long wait, but it was predicted and it was written. Notice also he would be from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. Luke writes, Jesus, son of Judah. Jacob had 12 sons, which the 12 tribes of Israel originated. By specifying the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, God eliminated the descendants of the other 11 tribes. So see what's happening. You're moving from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. Now you're going to one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Notice he's from the line of Jesse, his father. Isaiah 11.1, 1, the then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Luke chapter 3, Jesus, son of Jesse. Notice he'll keep from the house of David, Jeremiah 23. I will raise up a righteous branch of David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteous, righteousness in the land. Luke writes again, Jesus, son of David. The Bible says that he will also be the heir of the throne of David. Isaiah 9, he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Luke writes, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. The Bible also says, again, narrowing our focus, that he'll be born to one woman, but to a specific woman, born to a virgin. Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is how you're going to know. This is a prophecy. How are you going to know this is the Messiah? The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Matthew 1, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Now, what does the Bible say in Luke chapter 1, verse 26? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by his statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Here it is. Mary asked the angel, How can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. Now the Hebrew word here for a virgin could also be translated young woman. There's been debate about that. There's no instance where it can be proved that this word Alma designates a young woman who's also not a virgin. It's the only Hebrew word that signifies an unmarried woman. Another word in the Hebrew is the word Bethula. It's translated virgin, but it can mean one who is a virgin and one who's betrothed, but uh, actually married. The word Alma that is used here, it combines both the ideas of being a virgin and being unmarried at the same time. Notice also that now this woman is going to give birth in a specific place. He will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem. By pinpointing the exact city where the Messiah would be born, it eliminates every other city on the planet. That this one who's a descendant of Abraham, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from the father Jesse to a virgin in a city called Bethlehem. One place. It eliminates all the other places. Remember, it was just a small village. There weren't many men or women in this village to begin with. So Christ's birth in Bethlehem was not the choice of Mary and Joseph. It was the choice of Caesar Augustus who gave a decree that all should be taxed and go back to their, the, the, their uh, home uh, town. And Joseph's home family was from Bethlehem. Notice also there would be the slaughter of children. Jeremiah 31. This is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 2? Beginning in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave order to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. What I just read. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. The Bible also says the Messiah will escape to Egypt. Hosea chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew chapter 2, 
So he, Joseph, got up, took the child Jesus and his mother during the night, Mary, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's one of the most fascinating scriptures in all the Bible. Pinpointing exactly that he would come out of Egypt. The Bible also says that a messenger will precede the Messiah. Isaiah 40, a voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, making a straight highway for our God in the desert. Malachi chapter 3, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he is coming. Matthew chapter 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. The Bible also says the Messiah will come from the seed of a woman. This prophecy that I'm going to read to you could be the most significant prophecy because it was written 4,000 years before the Messiah Christ was born. Here God speaks to the serpent in the Garden of Eden and says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel concerning the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Galatians 4, Paul says, but when the completion of time came, when time was pregnant, literally, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews 2 says this, thou since the children have flesh and blood in common, he also shared in these flesh and blood. So that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. John writes in 1 John, the one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Which leads me to a summary of really what's going on here. There are 300 prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah the first time. But did you know there is 1,845 prophecies in the Old and New Testament concerning the second coming of Christ? Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Christ. One in 30 verses in the New Testament concern the second coming of Christ. If all 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled by the coming of one person, Jesus Christ, you can bet your life, literally, that all 1,845 prophecies in the Bible are going to be fulfilled concerning the second coming of Christ. Look, we know, we know that the coming of Christ fulfilled those prophecies. So what makes us believe that the second coming is not going to be fulfilled? If God was faithful to the first coming of Christ, he certainly will be faithful to the second coming of Christ. 
Now, what does all this mean? Well, it means this, that the Bible is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is right. And more specifically, the story of Jesus Christ is true. It really happened. And it was predicted before it ever did happen. Millions of people are believing a lie. On two men who lived and died, who came up with a good idea, but a good idea that has led people straight to hell. And that's why the nations need Jesus Christ. It means also that God is sovereign. He was in control of this whole thing as it related to the prophecies that he put into the Bible as we know it. And he controlled the story, he controlled the historical events. Every single one of them. And God is in control of the world today. And he's in control of your life. You can trust him. It also means that God is at work. When there was the silence for 400 years, there was the prediction of the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament had been canonized. And for 400 years, nothing is recorded. But during that time, God was at work. I've talked about before how God was developing the Roman Empire for what would come so that the message of Christ could get out to the world. God was at work, and God is at work today in your life. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I promise you God's at work. That means you can rest. You don't have to worry this Christmas. You can trust him. It means that God has a purpose, and that purpose is his redemption story. It concerns the salvation of men and women, boys and girls. It means that God loves you, and he proved that by allowing this Messiah to come, our Savior, and die on the cross for our sins. It means that God cares about the details of your life. If he put this much detail into his word about the coming of his son, look, he cares about the details of your life. You're important to him. You're not alone. But most important, he wants you to receive the gift of his grace, Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor, why is that important right now? Well, I'm going to give you an illustration of why. You know, in Japan, they celebrate Christmas much like we do. They, they make it a big deal. They, they exchange the presents. They have the Christmas tree. They do the decorations. They sing the Christmas carols. They, they, they do a big deal about Rudolph and uh, Frosty, you know, the snowman and all the rest of it. It's a big deal. They have a real strange tradition. It's really the most important thing that they do in that culture on Christmas Eve is that throughout the nation, there'll be concerts. And it's one concert. It's the same concert wherever you go. It's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Now, why is it that? I have no idea, but that's a big deal there. But a missionary to Japan was asked by a resident and missionary this question. Do they celebrate Christmas because of the birth of Santa Claus? And they were dead serious when they asked this. And you serious why they asked it? Because 99% of those who live in Japan follow Shinto or Buddha. One half of one percent know the Christmas story. That's why 
The heart of Christmas is based upon the heart of Scripture. And that's why we send missionaries to the world. And you help support those missionaries go to the world to help them know what the heart of Christmas is all about. The heart of Christmas is based upon the heart of Scripture. And the heart of Scripture is centered around one person, Jesus Christ. Today, I want to give you the great opportunity of coming to know, not just about him, as Evan said, but to truly know him as the Messiah, as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as your Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? There might be somebody here today who would say, Pastor, I'm like Evan. I know about God, but I really don't know him. And today, I want to give my heart to Christ as my Lord and Savior. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, and I want to invite you to come to one of our pastors during that song and indicate to them that you want to give your heart to Christ. Now, you may not know what to say or do, but, but they do. They'll help you. There might be many in this room who would say, Pastor, I know the Lord. I love him, but to be honest, I'm not where I should be spiritually. And today has really helped reaffirm my faith and helped me understand that the Christmas story is true and that maybe God is using this message and this this uh, day in your life to renew your love for him and to know that he went into great detail to prove to the world through prophecy of the coming Messiah that it's, it's all true and real and that Christ makes all the difference in the world and in your life personally and that the world needs to hear this story. So there might be somebody you know here or far away who needs to know about the love of God through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today, God is leading you, your family, to become part of our church family. We're not a perfect church, but we're a very loving church. And we want to help you grow in your Christian life and for you to help us grow and mature in our Christian life. And so if God is leading you to do that, you come this morning. Some may just want to pray here at the altar alone, or maybe you want someone to pray for you. And let us know and we'll do that. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, it's not a book of antiquity. It's not just black letters on a page. But Father, it is living. It is dynamic. It is active. It pierces our soul. Father, I pray that as you have pierced the soul of these who are here today, may they respond by faith and obedience now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's Thank you.